reading for today is Romans chapter 12, um, and it's the whole chapter. And if you're using the church Bible, it's page 1139. So Romans chapter 12, verse 1. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is his good, pleasing, and perfect will. For by the grace given me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourselves more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourselves, yourself with sober judgment in, according, in accordance with the faith God has distributed to each of you. For just as each of us has one body with many members, these members do not all have the same function. So, in Christ, we, though many, form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. We have different gifts, according to the grace given to each of us. If your gift is prophesying, then prophesy in accordance with your faith. If it is serving, then serve. If it is teaching, then teach. If it is encouraging, it is to encourage, then give encouragement. If it is giving, then give generously. If it is to lead, do it diligently. If it is to show mercy, do it cheerfully. Love must be sincere. Hate what is evil, cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in love. Honour one another above yourselves. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervour, serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Share with the Lord's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals, coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. This is God's word. Dave, is this mic muted and this mic on? Hopefully, that's the way it's working. So the lectern should be read. Great. Uh, well, good morning, everyone. Uh, my name is Peter. I haven't met you before. I'm one of the pastors here. And for the last few weeks, we've been 
thinking together about gospel doctrine and gospel culture. And the reason for this series is that we want the grace of Jesus Christ in all his goodness not only to be heard and known in what we say, but also to be seen and felt and experienced in how we live together. Over the last two Sundays, we've seen how the doctrine of justification by faith creates a culture of joyful welcome and humble acceptance of one another as one in Christ. We've seen how the doctrine of who God is, that he's light, and the doctrine of Jesus' death on the cross in our place creates a culture not of sinless perfection where we have to pretend that we're okay, but a culture of honest confession where we are free to be real with each other. And what we've seen is that it's vital that we have both doctrine and culture because both doctrinal fidelity and relational beauty are essential if we're going to be faithful to our Lord Jesus and to his gospel. We need gospel doctrine and gospel culture because the gospel is not just a message that you believe. If you believe the gospel, you are changed by it. It gets into our hearts. It transforms us so that we live differently. And what emerges when we're all doing that together is a gospel culture. So uh, next week, we're going to restart a series in Genesis. We're going to be looking at the life of Abraham up until Easter. Uh, but, for day, but for today, just for the last time, we're going to think about one last feature of a gospel culture. What we're going to see is the doctrine of God's mercy... And how that creates a culture of honour. So let's pray together. Father, we thank you so much for your incredible mercy that you have shown us through Jesus. We praise you that you accept us as we are. That we don't have to clean ourselves up for you to love us and welcome us. Thank you that we just throw ourselves on your mercy and you accept us as we are. But we praise you too that you do not leave us as we are. Thank you that your mercy transforms us and changes us to be more like Jesus. And so we, we pray that today we would again experience your grace and your mercy. And we pray that today that would change us by your spirit to be those who embody this gospel culture. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, at the end of December, the Cabinet Office published the New Year's Honours List. These honours, they're bestowed by the King. And the Honours List, it recognises achieve, the achievements and service of extraordinary people across the UK, awarding MBEs, OBEs, CBEs, knighthoods, damehoods. My favourite story from this year's honours list were the CBEs given to the ex-rugby league players, Kevin Sinfield and Rob Burrows. Uh, the pair, they played alongside each other for 14 years at Leeds Rhinos. And they have been like brothers through their careers and then since they've retired. In 2019, Rob Burrows, who is the little guy on the left, he was diagnosed with motor neurone disease. And in the last few years, together, they have raised more than £15 million 
for charities, uh, motor neuron disease charities. Last year, uh, Rob Burroughs' wife, Lindsay, along with Kevin Sinfield, they organised the Rob Burroughs Marathon in Leeds as part of their fundraising efforts. And with 12,000 others, Kevin Sinfield actually pushed Rob Burroughs around the 26-mile course in a specially adapted wheelchair. I've never run a marathon. I would not want to want to run a marathon pushing someone else. Uh, but as you can see, he's like a super fit guy, so he can do that kind of thing. Anyway, at the end of this marathon, having pushed his friend around this 26-mile course, there was a beautiful moment where uh, Kevin got Rob Burroughs out of his wheelchair and carried him across the finish line, even giving him a little kiss on the cheek as they crossed the line together. What I love about their friendship is the way that they're always seeking to honour the other person. So Kevin, obviously, is the one who does all the running and the crazy endurance stuff. Uh, he recently did seven ultra-marathons in seven days. So he does all, all the running, but if you listen to Kevin talk, he's always putting the spotlight on Rob and, and on his wife, Lindsay talking about their inspirational courage and bravery as they face motor neuron disease. But if you listen to Rob talking, he's always putting the honour on Kevin and on his wife for their faithful friendship and sacrificial love towards him as his body deteriorates and as he dies. So it's a fitting tribute to both of them that Prince William traveled to the Leeds Rhino Stadium in Headingley. They were doing an event there together and Prince William presented them with their honours in person in front of their friends and family. We might not be used to thinking of our society as one where honour matters that much, but honour is important to every single human culture the world over. I mean, even in our society, universities give out scholarships in honour of famous alumni, we name football stands in honour of men like Kenny Dalgleish. That's it, there he is. Um, we name hospital centres in honour of women like Linda McCartney. We name airports in honour of men like John Lennon. We name performing arts centres in honour of women like Yoko Ono Lennon. Anyone would think Liverpool had some connection to the Beatles or something, wouldn't you? And God is concerned about honour too. The sixth command is about showing honour to parents. In Romans chapter 2, earlier on in this letter that we're looking at, Paul tells us that God wants us to seek glory and honour from him. And that God, in fact, will give glory and honour to those who do. God's ultimate promise is that he is going to make everyone who trusts in his son glorious. He is going to give great honour to us, even sharing in his own glory and honour. We see this played out in the story of the prodigal son, if you know that story in, in Luke's gospel. The young son runs away and then eventually he returns to his father and he hopes that maybe he can be welcomed back as a slave. But instead, the father welcomes him back 
as an honored son. The son, having basically told his father, I wish you were dead, is given a robe, a ring. The fattened calf is killed and they have a feast to celebrate him. The son is honored, not because his repentance is so compelling. He barely gets through the rest of his I'm sorry speech, but because the father's love is so powerful. But the same can be true for you. Even if you feel dishonored and forgotten by the world, God has not forgotten you. And if you return to him, trusting in Jesus, he will honor you. God is always looking for opportunities to do that. He's always looking for opportunities to lavish honor, even on people who don't deserve it. Honor is the culture of the father's family. Now I know that honor is not necessarily the culture that we grow up in, most of us, if you grow up in in the UK. We tend to be much more restrained in our praise and much more forthcoming with our complaints and our criticisms. I sometimes think if the weather was a person, he would not feel very encouraged. Because all we ever do is complain about the weather. We live in the kind of society where we only tell someone how much we love and appreciate them when they're gone. We live in the kind of society where we only really honor people at their funerals. So this kind of culture of honor, it does not necessarily come naturally to us. It certainly does not come naturally to me. This is not the tone of my house growing up. But it's something I've been trying to make a deliberate effort to do. But that's okay, actually, because gospel culture is not natural for any of us, ever. Because gospel culture, it's a gift that comes down from heaven. And so we are all having to adjust. If you don't feel like you're adjusting anymore, it's either because you have attained sinless perfection or because you're no longer letting the real Jesus tell you how to live. Welcoming and accepting people who are different to us does not come naturally to any of us. And yet, the gospel doctrine of justification by faith, it gets into us. It changes us so that we do that. Being honest with other people about our sins and our failings doesn't come naturally to anyone either. But the doctrine of God being light, of Jesus' death on the cross, it gets into us and it changes us so that we start to do that. And in the same way, honoring others liberally, it may not come naturally to us either. It might feel awkward to us. But as we're going to see, the doctrine of God's mercy gets into us and changes us so that we begin to do that. And what we're thinking about this morning, this culture of honor, is basically the the other side of the coin to what we were thinking about last week if you were here. Last week we were thinking about honesty. And if honesty is not trying to hide the worst things about us so that they remain hidden, honor is trying to highlight the best things about others so that their glory 
can be noticed. And that kind of honour is what the risen and ascended Lord Jesus commanded us. Jesus, through the Apostle Paul, says, Romans 12, chapter 1, be devoted to one another in love. And then here's the key one. Honour one another above yourselves. The doctrine of God's mercy creates a culture of honour. Just before we think about a bit, a bit more about that specifically, I just want to point out that basically lots of Paul's letters work like this, gospel doctrine and gospel culture. So if we wanted to extend this series by another four or five weeks, which we don't, but if we did, we could look, for example, at the letter to Ephesians. And what we would see is that the doctrine of being dead in sin and given new life by grace in Jesus creates a culture of humility, Ephesians 2. We would see how the doctrine of reconciliation between us and God creates a culture of inclusion and peace among one another. That's also in Ephesians 2. We'd see how the doctrine of the Trinity creates a culture of unity. We'd see how a doctrine of forgiveness creates a culture of kindness, Ephesians 4. And Romans is basically a book that works like that as well. It's gospel doctrine and gospel culture. So if you think about Romans, chapters 1 to 11, which we haven't looked at, is all about gospel doctrine. It's the story of our sin, God's amazing grace in justifying us by faith. It's about the work of the Holy Spirit giving us new life. It's about our adoption as God's sons, our election as his people. Romans 11 is all about God's mercy. And then chapters 12 to 16, which we're going to start to look at today, is all about gospel culture. It's about offering ourselves to God to worship and honour him. It's about using our gifts to serve others. It's about loving others, sharing with others, uh, showing hospitality to others, living in harmony with others, not repaying evil with evil, but with good. And chapter 12, verse 1, is the transition. It's the transition from theology to ethics, from doctrine to culture, from belief to action. Therefore... I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. And I want you to notice how the doctrine creates the culture. We do this, living this out, gospel culture, in view of God's mercy. The power for living this out, for honouring others, comes from receiving God's mercy ourselves. So we'll just think very briefly about this, the doctrine of God's mercy. So Romans, this, this letter, it's the longest, it's probably the most important of Paul's letters. And we hope, Lord willing, next January, we're going to start a series uh, preaching through Romans. So you can look forward to that next January 2025. But as I said, basically, if you want to understand how Romans works, it's basically gospel doctrine, chapters 1 to 11, and then gospel culture, chapters 12 to 16, and then this transition verse in the middle. And so basically, what we have is 11 chapters of Paul telling us all about God's mercy. 
11 chapters of Paul telling us how we don't need to offer God loads of good works for him to love us. Rather, God in his mercy loves us, even in our sin, because of who he is. And in his mercy, he lifts us up, even us undeserving sinners. He lifts us up to the place of highest honor and glory through faith in Jesus. We, we just receive that. It's a free gift. And we, we receive that. And we're received by God. We're accepted and forgiven and blessed. And God treats us as he treats his own beloved son. God gives us the status and honor of being sons of God. Filled with the spirit. With this promise that one day we will enter into the freedom and glory of the children of God in a glorified new world. And it's ours for free from Jesus. 11 chapters of God's mercy. But here's the thing unless and until you receive that from God, receive that forgiveness, that new status as his child, until you have received that and know that you have received that, we are always looking to get honor from other places in a kind of toxic and grabby kind of way. Only when this great honor from God is ours and we know it's ours, are we freed to give honor. Let me explain what I mean. I want you to imagine that someone you live with or maybe someone you work with, so it could be your spouse or a parent or a housemate or maybe a colleague at work, and they go away for a few days. And while they're away, you think to yourself, that massive job that they said they need to do, I'm going to do it while they're away. You give the whole house a deep clean from top to bottom, or you strip and sand and paint the corridor, or you sort out the filing cabinet or the storeroom, something that really costs you time and energy and effort. So rather than going home to lay about on the sofa in the evenings, you go back to the office, or you're, you're up and down your house cleaning and sorting and everything else. And you think to yourself, when they get back, they are going to love me. They're going to thank me and celebrate me and honor me. But when they get back, they don't even notice. They don't even notice. And you feel dishonored. Don't you? We've all been there. And so you might, there's two responses you can do then. You either try to make that other person feel bad that they didn't notice and you try and sort of force out some honor from them that, that, that they begrudgingly give because they feel guilty that they didn't notice that you did it. Or you just decide, I'm never going to do it again. Stuff them. If they don't notice, who cares? That's how it works, isn't it? So, so often, our thirst for approval and validation and recognition is just not being met, is it? It's not being met in the world. And so we go on and we, we try and pull it out of people in a way that they can never satisfy. Or worse, 
we drive them away by our constant neediness. But when we receive what God offers us in the gospel, when we receive the honor that he gives us, we're freed. We're released to serve other people without needing something in return. Even if we're overlooked by others, that's okay because God doesn't overlook us. He honors us. And that frees us because we don't have to keep looking to others to get honor from them. Rather, now we can look to others to give honor to them. The gospel releases us from that kind of brooding self-focus. We receive resources from heaven and it makes a gospel culture of honor possible. In other words, Romans 12 is only possible if you have read Romans 1 to 11. So I know that this sermon is not doing that. (laughs) Romans 12 only works Offering ourselves to God in worship to honour others only works if first we have received the mercy and honour that comes from God to us in the gospel. We have to know deep in our souls that we've been forgiven, justified, filled with the Spirit, honoured by God. And then that creates a whole new possibility. A gospel culture of honour. Now, like I say, I I don't think this comes naturally to us. Um, In the UK, we have a bit of a culture of what's known as tall poppy syndrome. We are just a bit wary of people who we think they're getting a bit too big for their boots. They're rising a bit too tall, putting themselves higher than others. And so our approach is we cut them down to size with as much criticism of them as we can find. The only problem with that is... I can't think of anywhere that doing that is commanded in the Bible. Now, of course, there is a place for correction and rebuke. We all need that. We saw that in our very first sermon. Paul rebukes Peter publicly to his face. But the aim of that is never to, to cut someone down to size. In fact, the Bible commands precisely the opposite. We've seen it, verse 10, right? Be devoted to one another in love. Honour one another above yourselves. I think the ESV puts it really helpfully. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honour. Outdo one another in showing honour. I think it's a really helpful way to put it because it highlights two things we need to know about honour. The first is that when we talk about honour, we're not describing a feeling of feeling honour towards someone else. Rather, we're talking about the the action of showing or giving honour. What a tragedy that we could sit next to someone that we deeply admire and respect and honour and never tell them until they were gone. What a tragedy. But in a gospel culture, honour is shown, not just felt. Second, the thing to highlight is that we're not just to show honour, but to outdo one another in showing honour. It's, it's interesting, I think, very often Paul commands moderation. So in the use of some spiritual gifts, Paul makes it very clear that there is a time and a place and this might not be it. But when it comes to showing honour, the handbrake is off. As, as far as I know, this is the only place in the Bible where we are commanded to compete 
with one another. Now, we are instinctively trying to outdo one another in all kinds of destructive ways. But in showing honor, it's competitive and everyone wins. We're to be liberal in our praise, effusive in our encouragement, abundant in showing honor. And we all know, don't we, that kind of culture is totally different to the world in which we live. We, we live in a world of predatory, sarcastic put-downs, where people are constantly being cut down to size and put in their place. Some of us have never known anything else apart from that, even growing up. Most of us, I think, we live on a starvation diet of honor and encouragement. And that kind of culture, it can get into us. Paul Tonio is a, a Swiss philosopher and an author and counselor, and, and he wrote this. In everyday life, we are continually soaked in this unhealthy atmosphere of mutual criticism. So much so, we're not even, always even aware of it. We find ourselves drawn unwittingly into this vicious circle. Every reproach evokes a feeling of guilt in the critic as much as in the one criticized. And each one gains relief from his guilt by criticizing other people and in self-justification. Every day, we are drenched in this fault-finding critical spirit. And it is so easy for that to find its way into the church. Grumbling and complaining become normal and honor and, and encouragement become weird. It shouldn't be like that. It should be the opposite. I, I'm a little bit wary of saying this, but um, I, I think I'm going to point out anyway. Very often in a church, particularly the leaders are the most criticized and the least encouraged people in the church. That's because in a church, so like ours, there's like 50 of us say, each person only needs to make three criticisms per year. And that is enough for one for every other day, for a whole year. And because most of those criticisms, they get back to me and to us in one way, form or another, of one form or another, we hear a lot of criticism. <laughs> now, please don't mishear me. I am not saying that you should not criticize. I get stuff wrong, and I need to be told when I've got stuff wrong. As leaders, we want to be open to criticism and correction. We, we need that, so please tell us. I, I only point this out because I just want to point out that, like, cumulatively, most leaders hear a lot of criticism, but comparatively, not very much encouragement. But in a gospel culture, it should be the opposite. We should be, our, our level of honor, our encouragement should far outweigh anything else. And the gospel empowers us to do that because we have been honored in Christ and so we're free to honor others. And I, I don't just mean like to be nice to them. It's about showing dignity and esteem and respect and gratitude. It's when we start treating each other like the royalty we actually are. What I'm describing is not flattery. Flattery is lying. It's like buttering someone up with someone that's not actually true about them in order to get something from them. But honor 
is when we notice this redemptive reality that Christ is in you and I've seen it and I've noticed it and I want to tell you that I've seen it and noticed it. In a gospel culture then, we don't cut one another down to size, rather we do the opposite. We lift one another up, not with empty flattery, but with real honor because in Christ, real glory and honor is appearing. One of the things I most appreciate about the Apostle Paul is that he actually practices what he preaches. In Philippians 2, he gives us a worked example. He publicly honors Timothy and Epaphroditus for their faithful work in the Lord and their love for the Philippians. And he says to the church about Epaphroditus, welcome him in the Lord with great joy and honor people like him. We see the same attitude in David in Psalm 16, which Crispin read to us at the beginning of the service. David says in Psalm 16, I say of the holy people who are in the land, they are the noble ones in whom is all my delight. As we we hear those words of David in Psalm 16, we should hear them as the words of the king about his subjects. That is, the words of Jesus Christ the king about us. That is how Jesus feels about you. In his eyes, you are not small or forgettable or second rate. In Jesus' eyes, you have great dignity, great nobility. You are given, bestowed glory and honor. Jesus delights in you. But here's the thing, you're not the only one. Christianity always involves being invited into community and you can either resist that or embrace that. You have to choose between isolation, which is easy, or community and belonging, which is costly, but much more satisfying. And part of belonging is being with others who are different to you. When you meet a Christian in our church who's different to you, and we're a diverse bunch in age and background and everything else, maybe you meet someone that you wouldn't naturally connect with or like or get on, it's an occasion to rejoice. To rejoice that God's love is bigger than yours is. Wide enough to embrace even someone like you. And as those who are in Christ... Jesus invites us to share his perspective on each other, to see one another as he does. Jesus invites us to delight in each other as the noble ones in whom his spirit dwells. And so we we need to pray for that. We need to pray for the Spirit's help that we could actually see each other as Jesus does, not just as members of our church, but as members of Christ himself. I used to help run a one-year graduate internship program. I mean, used to encourage those guys, encourage the good wherever you find it. And if you can't find any, you're not looking hard enough. Brothers and sisters, Christ delights in you. And he invites you to share in his delight in your brothers and sisters to notice and celebrate what is delightful about one another. Because... We do not want being together as a church family 
to be the same kind of experience as we experience Monday to Friday in the world. We want this to be an experience of a totally different kind of culture, a gospel culture, where people are celebrated, where they are lifted up and honoured, where their strengths are admired, where their weaknesses are forgiven. Because faithfulness to the gospel, it requires more than just signing up to a doctrinal statement of faith. It requires a whole new way for us to treat one another. A way marked by honesty. No longer trying to hide the worst things about us. And it also involves a way of honor. Highlighting the best things about others so that their glory can be seen gospel culture. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for, uh, for David's words in Psalm 16. I say of the holy people who are in the land, they are the noble ones in whom is all my delight. Thank you that those are not just David's words. Really, they're Jesus' words about us. Father, how amazing it is that that's how Jesus thinks of us as noble ones in whom he delights. We thank you so much for that. We pray that that would sink into our hearts. And we pray that as it does, it would change us to delight in one another as you delight in us. Help us by your spirit, we pray in Jesus' name. Loving kindness as the flood When the prince of life our ransom Shed for us his precious blood Who is love will not remember Who can cease to sing his praise He can never be forgotten Eternal days on the mount of crucifixion, fountains open deep and wide. It's of God's mercy, float a vast and gracious tide, grace and love like mighty rivers. Poured incessant from above And earth's peace and perfect justice Kiss the guilty world in love Million sins in earth and heaven Drawing near the eternal throne Called on every tribe and nation one exalted Savior, all in the crowded congregation.
Uh, we are uh, coming to up time in our service where we're going to share the Lord's Supper together. We're going to take bread and wine in remembrance of what Jesus has done for us. Uh, so let me, let me read from uh, the Bible and then we'll, we'll prepare to come to the Lord's table together. Uh, the Apostle Paul writes elsewhere, For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. As we um, come to the Lord's table together, we are remembering the depth of Jesus' love for us, the mercy that he showed us in going to the cross to die for us. We're looking back to the cross to see how much he loved us and and gave himself for us. But we're also looking forward uh, to that day when Jesus will return, when we will be glorified, (laughs) when that honour that Jesus has given us will be seen and we will see it in in one another and in in the meantime uh, Jesus has given us this meal that as we take it we would both remember what he's done how much he loves us and and look forward to that day and know that right now Jesus is not ashamed of us he's not ashamed that we're in his family but he delights to welcome us to his table as his honoured guests, as his noble ones in whom is all his delight. And so we, we come to his table not with confidence in ourselves, but confidence nevertheless because Jesus loved us and gave himself for us and he delights in us. And so as we, we share this bread and wine, let's uh, thank God for that. <laughs> And give him praise and honor and glory for all that he's done for us. Let me pray. Let me pray and then I'll, I'll bring the bread and wine round. Lord Jesus, we thank you so much that you loved us and gave yourself for us. And thank you that you welcome us to your table. Thank you that you're not ashamed of us. But that you delight in us. You treat us as your honored guests. As your noble ones in whom you delight. We know that we don't deserve that, Lord, but we praise you that that's how you treat us. And we thank you so much for that. We pray as we we take the bread and wine now that, again, that would help that truth just to sink into our hearts. That we might rest assured in your great love for us shown at the cross. And we pray this in Jesus.